Hi there, a quick note before we begin the episode. Did you know that Atlas Lingue has its own audiobook with exclusive and brand new material? It's called Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life. In this audiobook, we share additional exclusive commentaries on each episode with brand new insights and examples on the subject that we can't stop thinking about, how humans translate everything that comes their way. Also remember, when you buy Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. So find Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life, on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The way we dress is indicative of a lot of things. It can of course serve a utilitarian purpose. Jackets keep us warm, work boots keep us safe in construction sites. But whether we intend it or not, our fashion choices are one of the most immediate ways we communicate with others. Because we don't have to say a word to let everyone around us know a bit of who we are by what we wear. Now, some people, and I confess I kind of include myself here sometimes, might think, oh, I don't care about fashion. I just wear whatever I like or feels comfortable. I don't read any fashion magazines or follow any trends. But the thing is, deciding to not follow fashion is also a fashion choice. We're all participating in it, willingly or not. Welcome to Atlas Lingue. I'm your host, Luis Lopez. This season, we're exploring the subtle and not-so-subtle ways in which we communicate in our everyday lives. And in this episode, we'll be discussing the language of fashion. What we wear, why we wear it, and what it says about ourselves and the society we live in. Fashion is traditionally defined as a style of dress characterized by a regular pattern of style change. So as in Shakespeare saying, fashion was a deformed thief that wears out more apparel than the man. It changes faster than you can wear out the clothes. Historically, the word fashion is actually a very exclusive system. The intention of distinguishing between something that's fashionable and not fashionable is really separating out social classes in our society. Fashion is a prevailing style that's of the moment, that is the trend of the moment. It's a visual representation of whatever is happening in society and happening within our cultures. And this has been true basically since the first humans started to wear any sort of clothing or simply decorate their body. In every known human culture, the body has been dressed or fashioned in some way. 
which doesn't necessarily mean that people have always worn clothing in the sense of, you know, woven material or animal furs that cover the body, but rather the body's been decorated in some way, whether through body paint or beads or something else. This is Valerie Steele, a fashion historian and director of the Museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology. She's also the founder and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Dress, Body, and Culture. So it seemed to me that this construction of who you are is something that happens only within the context of a culture. I mean, in a state of nature with animals, you have already your coat of fur or feathers or scales or whatever, but it's only in the context of human culture that you're creating, as it were, this second skin that presents to the world who you are, what tribe you belong to, what gender you are, what marital status you are, what age you are. I love this concept of the second skin, because it clearly shows how clothing is an inherently human thing. You know how we say that the thing that differentiates us from other animals is our ability to speak? Well, so is our ability to clothe ourselves, because humans are the only ones who do it. Except for when we put sweaters on our pets, of course. And that clothing, even in its most rudimentary form, carries meaning with it. Forms of bodily modification like tattoos, hairstyles, etc. also were being used in the same way to fashion the body and to tell people who you are. Obviously, who you are varies from culture to culture, and we're much more about who I am personally, individually, whereas in traditional smaller scale cultures, it was much more who I am as part of this social network that I'm in. Dress is, of course, inextricably linked to our cultures. And it's easy to assume that what we wear for special rituals is sort of static. That it's always been this way because it's tradition. But in fact, those garments are also influenced by fashion choices. And one of the best examples of this is the Western wedding dress. Today, in American and European tradition, for the most part, you think of a woman's wedding dress as being white, and that's a very traditional color. Of course, people do break from tradition, but it has been believed that that's the traditional color. This is Summer Ann Lee. She's a fashion historian from the Fashion Institute of Technology. Now, white often symbolizes purity, innocence, and virginity. And nowadays, That's what the white wedding dress is usually thought to communicate. However, when it was just starting to appear, it communicated something quite different. Throughout history, actually, garments were incredibly expensive, especially textiles. That's one of the things that today we don't have the same appreciation for because we have uh, synthetic fibers that are much more affordable. Back hundreds of years ago, natural fibers like silk were very expensive. And so for a woman to purchase a new dress was a huge expense. This was even the case for wealthier families. So often a woman might simply be married in her best dress that she already had. Or if she did have a new dress made, white would have been a horrible choice because white is so difficult to keep clean. And so she may have had it made in uh, red, for example, or brown. 
Okay, so then how did the white dress become the norm? The wealthiest families knew that white was the most difficult dress color to keep clean. And that is the reason why if they did have a white dress made, everyone would look at you and they would think, wow, you must be loaded. <laughs> because how on earth are you going to keep such an impractical purchase from being destroyed? One popular myth is that Queen Victoria was the first woman to wear white at her wedding. But... Queen Victoria, you know, some people believe that she populated this trend to wear white wedding gowns. It actually isn't the case. She was actually kind of following the trends that had already been set for a middle class or a wealthy woman to wear a white silk dress. Um, what was different about her wedding dress was the fact that she was a monarch and she wasn't wearing gold and silver, but she was emulating the upper class fashion for wedding gowns. But I think looking back throughout history, it's very difficult to tell what might be a wedding dress in museum collections because a woman could have been married in, in anything. The wedding dress is just one example of a key element of fashion, its aspirational quality. With their fashion choices, wealthy people want to communicate their wealth, and everyone else wants to make it seem like they're wealthier than they are. So for women, for example, throughout history, um, young women, if they belonged to a class of family that did not need to have all of the children working, they would be trained in things like needlework, these sort of activities that you would do with your spare time, or of course, engaging in sports or engaging in the arts. The point of all of it was to put on display that you had this, this money that you could participate in the fashion system. Because fashion isn't only about clothing or body decoration. It's part of a whole lifestyle. So certain places and activities can also be considered fashionable. And participating in them is an indicator of your wealth and social status. And this can be seen in the very deliberately impractical garments that the aristocracy wore centuries ago. If you're thinking about, let's say, those giant starched collars, this was a whole dressing sequence that could take, uh, you know, potentially hours out of your day. And you would need to have servants essentially help you with that. You know, that was not happening with people who were of little means. But furthermore, also a huge motivation for, let's say, uh, in women's fashion to wear corsetry and wide hoop skirts. These are very impractical garments. So it's also sort of rendering yourself unable to do physical labor, um, which is again, just this huge visual manifestation of belonging to an exclusive class. And of course, these garments were incredibly exclusive, expensive, and tailor-made. And in fact, that is the origin of one of the French fashion terms we've probably all heard, whether or not we follow fashion. Haute couture. Haute couture is a very interesting term. I mean, couture just means sewing. Here's Valerie again. And couturiers, females who sewed, seamstresses, dressmakers, have existed, you know, since the 17th century when they were allowed to form a guild by Louis XIV. Traditionally, women in many cultures have made the clothes for their families. Uh, but when clothing 
production has become professionalized, sometimes men have taken over that production. There was a uh, fashion designer named Charles Frederick Worth who kind of proclaimed himself to be like the first couture house. And Worth was one of the first to announce that what he was doing was grand couture. Now that was the term first used, big couture, uh, big sewing. And over time, this uh, evolved into the idea of haute couture so that it was high sewing. It wasn't just a big manufacturing, but it was high art clothing. Increasingly throughout history, this is when you see the name of the designer becoming so important. So we think of Chanel, Dior, Givenchy, Scaparelli, all the way to Alexander McQueen and Versace. These are important couture design houses that are really the highest level that you're aspiring to. All of the clothing that is haute couture is custom made, um, essentially to the measurements of the wearer with a very, very high level of craftsmanship, the people who are making the garments and of course also associated with the talent of the designer. And adjacent to the term haute couture is another term that may seem obvious, but is worth thinking about a bit, luxury. Luxury is a term which is important and in a way is a term that predates the idea of fashion as a changing style because throughout recorded history, certain kinds of luxury products, whether it's carved mammoth tusk beads or gilded leather accessories, have been part of elite dress. And even when those styles of clothing don't change rapidly, the fact that rare or expensive or highly desirable, perhaps traded from far, far away materials are brought in to create dress or accessories that becomes luxurious. And that's still very much a part of what we think of in terms of luxury fashion, that it's something desirable in short supply, very expensive, special, made by specially trained craftspeople, etc. But of course, there are levels to luxury. For example, designers also have less expensive options, not cheap, just less expensive, that aren't tailor-made and are known as ready-to-wear. And then below all of that, there's a super broad category of streetwear, where the majority of our casual clothing fits. It's what we wear every day, both for practical purposes and to show our interests and preferences. Whether it's a sports team jersey, a band t-shirt, or skinny jeans and a fedora. And a key trait in some streetwear is their often large and very noticeable logos, a phenomenon referred to as logomania. When we think about this concept of logomania, where everyone is so obsessed with those designer logos, we can actually really attribute that more so to the 1980s and a designer named Dapper Dan, who was working in uh, New York City. And he was actually reproducing, uh, in particular, the Louis Vuitton monogram inauthentically he was screen printing that monogram onto um, utilitarian items and items of streetwear, so like casual clothing, that was very, very successful with hip hop artists who were, you know, looking for streetwear that also had that sort of flavor of luxury and even flamboyance. But it's a really great example of how 
the average person can be so interested in appearing that they have the money, that they have the wealth to invest in these luxury items, even if it really actually is a counterfeit item. They just want to have that logo associated with them because of what a luxury designer logo can mean to people when they see it. And what's fascinating is that these streetwear trends ultimately end up completing the cycle and influencing haute couture at the top of the fashion chain. So when the logo mania comes back to haute couture, it's really not just the logos that are being carried back. It's the whole trend, cultural baggage and all. Whatever is happening within our culture and our society always has an impact on fashion. That's Yvonne Intiamoa. She's the head of fashion design at Radford University in Ghana and a research fellow at the Royal College of Arts in the UK. Her research focuses on decolonization of higher education in fashion design. I think culture and traditions are a big plus in terms of fashion because culture and traditions determine how we dress, how we're perceived and how we convey ourselves within different settings. And Yvonne has another great example of a culture influencing a brand. I would say the fabric Kinti is a traditional woven fabric that's very popular in Ghana, traditionally linked to royalty. But um, a couple of seasons ago, Virgil Abloh used some Kinti in um, some of his collections for Louis Vuitton. And there was a real backlash. I was teaching a class at that time. And they were very upset because they thought that he hadn't uh, used it respectfully. He had put it together with shirts and trainers and very casual and dressed it down. I, I saw where he was going with it. He was trying to normalize it, make it more accessible to a cross-sectional fashion. And this was particularly special for those who wanted to wear it as an expression of pride. You, you see it a lot also in America, like um, when a Black American is, for instance, doing their graduations or getting married, you'll see a lot of use of the sashes of kinti around their necks. And I think in the 80s, it started to have a symbolic uh, meaning of Black heritage, African heritage, which has uh, filtered through. And now there, there are many different representations of kinti, many different colors, many different weaves and so on. But how are we going to make it respectful and uh, make it commercially viable to the indigenous people of Ghana? That's the question that I'm trying to answer. This brings us to one of fashion's key emerging issues, the decolonization of fashion practices that have cultural, economic and environmental consequences. I think um, decolonization starts with contextualizing. And by contextualizing education, you are making it relevant to the people of that context, to the people who are engaging in that education by breaking it down. Well, I think partly it has to do with this old distinction between modern European fashion and, you know, dress, which is worn by everybody else in the world until we introduce them to the wonders of modern Western fashion. Here's Valerie again. And I think there's been a lot of sense on the part of people studying other cultures that there is no culture without history. 
And therefore, you know, if fashion is about change over historical time, then even the most isolated culture will have some context, will have some change over time. Basically, globalization made it so that the West monopolized the creation and discussion around fashion. Therefore, fashion was historically seen through a Western lens, and any cultural examples from anywhere else were excluded. Here's Summer. So when you look at the globe and you look at cultures that have um, clothing items, like if you look at India and the sari, or Japan and the kimono, those are forms of dress that, again, traditional fashion historians of the past would not have referred to as fashion. And that is absolutely being challenged today, that these are forms of fashion, but it looks different or it behaves differently than fashion in the West. And that does not make it any less than. And what's interesting is that sometimes these examples actually don't behave too differently from Western fashion. When you look at Chinese history, for example, it's just so obvious. I mean, Ming Dynasty writers are talking about who are all these young men in towns like Yangzhou who are wearing these fashionable clothes and what's the big deal? What's their father's clothes are not good enough for them. They're changing clothes constantly. And even earlier in the Han Dynasty, so even period of the Roman Empire, you have people saying, well, you know, you want to have an antique accessory because that's prestigious, like a luxury piece. But then you also want to have the most modern sash that you're wearing that accessory on so that you again have this idea that um, it's not merely luxury, but ideas of novelty, ideas of cultural exchange. All these books saying that Chinese costume or dress is ancient and unchanging. It's just that's wrong. It can be proved to be wrong. So the concept of fashion as something that constantly changes is not unique to the West. Other cultures have their trends, and they even have their older generations who are annoyed by them. And just as fashion has such a Western bias, it also has a contemporary bias, meaning that the way we view history often assumes that people in the past were always more oppressed and less competent. And Valerie gives us a great example of this in The Corset. Uh, the idea that women were universally throughout the West uh, oppressed for 400 years by being put in tight-laced whalebone corsets, and then they were liberated in the uh, 20th century uh, to be have like free bodies. We've all seen those period dramas that have that one scene where someone's tightening a woman's corset. It's meant to be shown as such a painful ordeal, but also an obligation to meet certain beauty standards. But there's so much more to corsets than that. In fact, the experience that women had of corsetry varied tremendously over time and from person to person. The degrees of tightness, the degrees of pressure to wear a corset, what did it mean to wear a corset? Not all of them were whalebone. There were others which were, you know, softer that were just deliberately made to be more comfortable. It's always helpful to remember that the past will inevitably be viewed from a present lens. Which makes me think, how will people in the future view our present? Because there are a couple of directions that fashion is clearly heading towards. And one of them has to do with the growing phenomenon of fast fashion and microtrends. I mean, if you're thinking about fashion trends from hundreds of years ago, 
Fashion might change every five or 10 years. And now we're probably looking at, you know, a couple of months or even a couple of weeks. And in order to feed into this very quickly changing fashion system, there's increased pressure on retailers and manufacturers to push out more and more clothing, which is having a very negative impact on the environment. And also the workers for these places are almost always working in unethical conditions. So because fast fashion requires a massive production of inexpensive clothing, which is environmentally harmful, more and more people and businesses are trying to communicate that they are sustainable. So we see more green logos, eco-friendly branding, and use of recyclable materials. And of course, there are arguably simpler solutions, like reusing our clothing, taking care of it, and buying secondhand clothes. So, I mean, sustainability has always existed within um, the context of Ghana, for instance. We come from a culture where nothing's ever thrown away and it's passed down, even down to when we cut our fabrics and make new garments. All the scraps are joined together to make garments for children and younger people within the household. So coming from that culture, sustainability means a whole new thing to people of Ghana it, it, it's always existed so when you when you say to somebody in Ghana oh you have to reuse the stuff you you have to reuse your clothes it's like I do that anyway that, <laughs> that's my life well, what are you talking about that's normal nowadays in certain places it can be quite fashionable to shop at a thrift store and buy secondhand clothes not only because it's more sustainable but because you can find vintage items and it's not necessarily cheaper either. In fact, people will likely buy and wear these clothes deliberately. They prefer them as a way to communicate who they are. And on top of that, sometimes in those shops you find yourself liking a particular piece of clothing and you don't care if it was originally designed for men or women. Historically, there has been such a distinction between menswear and womenswear. It is so gendered but I think that there is a much larger movement towards, you might want to say unisex fashion or just fashion that can just be um, clothing that has no gender assigned to it. Because people today are just experiencing so much more freedom when it comes to their gender expression than ever before. And this, like so many other issues discussed in this episode, isn't a uniquely modern idea. Both women and men have at some point started to wear each other's clothing items. Throughout a lot of the 20th century, for example, there is such strict dress etiquette about what sorts of fashion, what levels of formality you wear to a specific event. But there's an example, and I can't remember the woman's name off the top of my head, but um, I think she was either a socialite or some sort of celebrity in the 1960s who was attempting to go into some sort of club or restaurant, and she was wearing trousers. And the person at the door said, well, we won't allow in women who are wearing trousers. So she took her trousers off and she just went in with her blouse on. But it shows you how drastically fashion etiquette has changed. Because, of course, today, can you imagine a, a woman not being allowed somewhere because she's wearing trousers? And this also goes the other way around. 
men have had this sort of like phobic reaction for a long time to women's things. It's like, God, you don't want to be effeminate or taken to be effeminate. It was a major step forward, I think, actually, when men in the 70s started to wear earrings because, you know, they hadn't done that since the Renaissance. You know, a few pirates in the 18th century were still wearing earrings. But suddenly they were getting in touch with their inner pirate and taking this back. That, I think, was quite huge, actually. The industry is still built entirely around making menswear and womenswear. Even if it's an androgynous piece of clothing like jeans or T-shirts, they're created in sizes and sold in departments that are separate. So you have to be somewhat courageous to just say, oh, it's okay, I'm shopping in the women's department. I believe the future of fashion is an inclusive industry. Inclusive being that we realize that fashion is not just Western fashion, and we are inclusive in embracing designers from all over the world, embracing different cultures, and thinking as an industry, how do we support economically all of these uh, influences and cultures and traditions that we take from all the time. How do we support them to survive? Is the future that I would love to see. If you think about it, a wardrobe is kind of like a dictionary. We take different items from it, put them together, and form messages. We tell the world who we are, what we like, how we're feeling that day. And adding more items adds to our fashion vocabulary as well. Now, some of us might be more eloquent than others, but we all speak through what we wear. Which reminds me, I haven't worn my suspenders in a while. I should put them on one of these days. And our wardrobe is one of many dictionaries we open every day. As we've learned throughout this season, we communicate in many different ways. We speak through our money. We speak with our pets, and sometimes they speak to us. We have unique ways to speak about death, sex, gender, friendship, and we even speak to our rivals when we're playing a game. Basically, in a way, everyone's a polyglot. So, how many languages have you spoken today? Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue. This episode concludes our second season. Thank you for joining us on this journey through some of the languages that we speak and interact with in our everyday lives. It was a pleasure, and we hope you stick around for our next season. All I can say right now is that it's going to be quite different. Special thanks to our guests, Summer Ann Lee, Valerie Steele, and Yvonne Ntiamoa. Atlas Lingue is an original production by Studio Ochenta. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Sound design and production by Chiara Santella and me, Luis Lopez. With additional production by Linnea Wingerup. Our production coordinator is Catalina Hoyos. For more information on Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, visit ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time. By the way, did you know that t-shirts are named like that because they kind of look like the letter T? 
Like, really, that's it. Clearly, there's language everywhere. Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country, and we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The Pulso Podcast is a Latina-hosted, Latina-produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star-Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 